beginning stages of a relationship, uh, you're just excited about that relationship. You, you, know, you have feelings of just kind of happiness, euphoria even, and, and are just really excited about knowing this person, certainly in marriage. But it happens in friendship too, right? Where you, you meet a new friend and you get to spend some time with that friend and you realize, wow, this person is fantastic. And you just are excited about that friendship. You enjoy that friendship. It happens in relationships with neighbors perhaps. You move into a new neighborhood, and, and there's some really cool neighbors who live near you. Uh, and you're getting to know them, and you wow, this is great. What a great neighborhood. Um, it can happen. It does happen with, with church as well. People come to a new church, and, um, and they're really excited about that church. It's the honeymoon phase. Like, wow, this is a great church. I've had people say things like that <laughs> at times. It always scares me. Like, this is like the best church I've ever been in. And I think, oh, no. <laughs> We're in trouble. <laughs> um, but that's the honeymoon phase, kind of those that early part of a relationship where we're just excited and we're seeing all the good and, and probably blind to the realities as well in that that we need to deal with. And, and it's interesting that it happens really in any relationship. And if we're not careful, the honeymoon phase can transition to reality phase, but even more than that, the this a cynical phase, right? There are times, and we can probably all think of relationships with friends, with neighbors. Maybe your neighbor right now, you're in that cynical phase where you're like, oh boy, um, you know, I, I, I wish I didn't live in this neighborhood. Or, um, or that awkward, you know, old friendship where you're just kind of, you know, you're maybe tolerating each other, but you're, it feels awkward. Um, sadly, in marriage, if not tended to, marriages can turn to that as well where you just kind of go through the motions, or, or worse. Well, our passage today is a message from Christ himself, actually, to the church in Ephesus, and through God's word, from Christ himself to every church in every time, about this very issue, this issue of the first love, and not losing your first love with the Lord. Uh, there's wonderful truth here for us, and I think the Lord wants to wants to capture our attention this morning with his word and transform us and restore us. Perhaps you are in the place where the honeymoon phase has turned into the cynical phase in your relationship with the Lord. He wants to restore you. His word is living and active and, and it's effective in our lives, sufficient for us. And so let's pray and ask him to do all that he has in mind through his word this morning. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, that you come to rescue us. And, and Lord, left to ourselves, we would live in the, the cynical phase with probably every relationship, our relationship with you. We thank you for your rescue. We thank you for Revelation chapter 2 in this section. Lord, and I, I pray as we hear it taught, as it's proclaimed this morning, I pray, Lord God, that you would restore and renew us in our first love for you that we individually and as a church would be full of love, your love for you, for one another, for the lost around us as well. Refresh and renew us. Speak to, to old, hardened hearts, Lord. And speak life and renewal. And glory to your worthy name. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. This is the beginning of Revelation, chapter 2. Jesus is addressing the churches. 
these seven churches, which are representative, really, of all churches and all ages, because seven being the perfect number, chosen to represent the idea of, of completeness and really the, the applicability to all churches. So here's God's word from Revelation 2, starting in verse 1. It says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus writes, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. God's word from Revelation 2, 1 to seven. In this section, Christ is addressing actually the angel of the church in Ephesus and as a representative of the whole church. He's addressing issues that are particular, real issues in that church. But through this letter, through God's word preserved for us, it's meant to address us as well. It's meant to address the church throughout the whole world and throughout all time until Christ returns. These letters to the seven churches are representative to really all the churches. There were more than seven churches in, in that area of the world, in, in um, that part of Asia Minor, southwest Asia Minor. Uh, but Christ chose seven to speak to, to really represent all churches, and, and therefore to speak to us. So we want to listen up this morning to his word to the church in Ephesus. This is really what he's saying, if I can summarize it. You have notes there. That, that have it listed out, the particular points, but it's this, that we, we, King of Grace, must maintain both the truth and love of God. We must maintain both the truth and love of God. That the survival and salvation of our church and our people depends on it. We must maintain both the truth and love of God. The survival and salvation of our church and our people depends on it. So first, let's talk about God's truth. The Ephesian church is commended in this, this letter, in this section of Revelation. They're commended for some very important things. Actually, of the churches in that uh, area, the seven different churches listed in Revelation, a number had failed where Ephesus had been successful. In the cases of Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, and Laodicea, which we'll talk about as we continue in the series, they had failed. They are, were in great danger of failing, to do what Ephesus had already done so well. This church, this church in Ephesus, had worked hard 
to be faithful to the truth. They had toiled. Toil is a word that kind of connotes this effort, this working hard against opposition. They'd worked hard to hold on to truth, to hold on to gospel truth. They had endured through opposition, and they hadn't compromised. They had resisted the heresies and the heretics that were so prevalent in their area. Paul had warned earlier, actually, in talking to the, Ephesians el- the Ephesian elders decades earlier in Acts chapter 20, that wolves would come in after his departure and attack the flock. And apparently the, the elders in the whole church in Ephesus had heeded that really well and had resisted the wolves. They had not only resisted the wolves, they had driven them out. There's no mention of anything going on in the church in Ephesus that is heretical. Where the other churches, particularly three of them, have in the church itself things going on, these heresies actually in the church. Ephesus is clean as far as that goes. And it wasn't easy. They had toiled. They had worked hard. They had done that hard work of resisting heresies, of exposing them, of of dealing with people and relating to people, relating to these false apostles who came in and, and probably were very eloquent and articulate and had things they said that were true, but there were, were things in there that were mixed in that were just off, that were wrong. And they did the hard work of exposing them as false apostles without the authority of an apostle, without the truth of an apostle. It's not easy to do that, guys. It can be hard to, to do the hard work of, of loving and listening and yet discerning and saying, no, that's actually not true. And then following through with the the difficulty of of saying, you know, that you can't keep on teaching that in this church. We love you. You can be here, but not with that stuff going on. It's hard work. It's hard to do that. And they probably had seen a lot of these assaults, a lot of this pressure. There there are themes among these seven churches that that are there that teach us about the sort of heresies that were going on. The, The Nicolaitans, we don't know for sure what they were teaching, but it looks like they were... They were teaching kind of a compromised Christianity. Basically the idea that, you know, it's okay if you do some of these other things. And probably they were teaching, from what, from what we know from the historical accounts and kind of the context in Revelation, that, you know, you're forgiven in Jesus and there's grace for us. So you can really do what you want. And as far as, you know, prohibitions against worshiping idols, just chill out on that one. Because you're forgiven. You belong to the Lord. He knows what you're doing. So it's okay if, if you worship the, the local idols that are part of your trade union. Because what could happen in that culture is if you didn't do that, you got kicked out of the trade union, which means you didn't have a job. So it's okay to, to do that. In regards to the best cuts of the meat that are only in the temple and so forth, it's okay to go in the temple and bow down to the, to the idol to get those good cuts of meat and so forth. You would be excluded, perhaps, from the marketplace because of refusal to worship idols. And, and so it looks like the Nicolaitans were, were ones who basically who were licentious. What that means is they said grace allows you just to do this stuff. It's not that big of a deal. Don't worry about it. And there probably was even grosser compromise as well going on among them. And you'll see later on, some of the churches allowed that teaching in the church. There were people who were following them. But these guys did not. They, they hated these practices, these compromising practices of of basically forgoing the gospel which calls us to be transformed by grace by the forgiveness and life of christ his blood shed for our sins his life in us to be worshipers of god only 
even to the point of death if necessary because we have real life in Him. This transforming gospel calls us to, to resist the ways of the world. And Ephesus had done that. They were faithful in a culture that was saturated with these things. We're to commend them, and we don't face this, the level of pressure that they faced. The fact that they were faithful and worked hard was, is to be commended. First Timothy chapter 4, verse 16, Paul tells Timothy, watch your life and your doctrine closely. Persevere in them, because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. And apparently, this letter was written to Timothy, actually, by the way, who was in Ephesus. Apparently, the church in Ephesus had done a great job of taking it to heart, at least in part. They had watched their doctrine closely because they knew a lot was at stake. If they compromised with the Nicolaitans, they were going to slide away from Christ, slide away from the gospel of grace that empowers us for renewed holiness and obedience to God. They knew that a lot was at stake, so they held on. They were faithful. And this church is to be commended for this. And by the way, the dangers of heresies and heretics have not ceased. They continue to this day. And there's lots of things out there. They're, they're a little different perhaps than what the Nicolaitans might have taught, but they're out there. We have various heresies around us. And I'm not necessarily talking about the more extreme ones. The, the most dangerous ones are the subtle ones that come in and, and sound okay, but are just a little bit off. And the Ephesians did, did the hard work as a church saying, "What? tell me more about this, of discerning, of listening, and, and, and dealing with these heresies. And we're to follow their example. There are heresies out there that, are, again, are just slightly off. One of them is the prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel says that, that because of life in Christ. You have a right through the, the power of faith itself. There's a, a faith in faith even in the prosperity gospel. You have a right by the power of faith to have a life free of any poverty, free of any sickness, and free of really of any unhappiness. Now certainly in Scripture when we live a new life in Christ, there are blessings that do come. And often if you follow the truth of the word, he will change you and and make you perhaps more employable and more prosperous just in your work, work ethic and so forth. There are principles there, but there's no promise in Scripture in this life that you will have health and wealth and happiness. Our Savior certainly didn't have those things in this life. And we follow Him, don't we? We belong to Him. And we find in, in Him our ultimate health and wealth and happiness, and that will be fulfilled in the new creation. The prosperity gospel says, no, that's yours now, and it's by faith, and anything less is, is compromising what God has for you. It's a false gospel. It takes atten attention away from finding our all in Christ and waiting upon Him for the fulfillment of His promises to putting the attention on the power of your own faith and the stuff, wealth and health. And this is running rampant in the United States and worldwide and in Africa. It has infected the church in Africa, and it's a real problem there. Maybe that one isn't too subtle to you. Here's another one. The gospel of the consumer. The consumer gospel. And I would say that this is a heresy that's there. And is that the point of, of being a heresy? 
It basically changes the gospel and changes the life of the church to, to being about the consumer. That it's about the consumer. We live in a culture that's a consumer culture. And this kind of false gospel, this subtle heresy, has come in really, I think, from good motivations. It's come in from the desire to reach people in our culture. And our culture is very consumer-oriented. We're used to being served as consumers, right? When you go to a, a health club or you go to a store, you expect to be served. You expect them to give you what you want in a nice, efficient, and pleasant manner, right? That's what we're used to. And that's not necessarily bad. You expect to have a, a good, fun time when you go out to a restaurant or if you go to a show, right? That's not necessarily bad. But what happens is the church says, in order for us to reach the culture, we need to do that stuff too. And in some ways, it's not bad because we're called to be hospitable, right? We're called to love people. But it takes that principle of hospitality hospitality and stretches it to the point where we create basically a bait and allure of entertainment to get people to come to church and stay in church. Now behind that is a desire that they would come and come to know Christ. That's a good thing. But what happens is when we build the, the culture and practices of the church around that kind of consumer mentality, we're not making disciples, we're just making spiritualized consumers. And this has infected the church. And, and whether you know it or not, even in our church, where, where we are careful about these things, along with many other churches, this affects all of us. And what the problem is, is it, it, it contorts the gospel. The gospel calls us to come and die with Christ. It calls us to give our life away to Him, and in him find our life, as Toby read earlier. The one who finds his life will lose it. The one who loses his life for Jesus' sake will find it. It calls us to come to him and say, Lord, I turn from myself. I turn from life on my own terms. I turn from being consumer-oriented to finding myself in you. I give all of my life to you. And you've given all of your life to me. And in you I have forgiveness and new life. And now I'm empowered. I'm loved in you. And I'm given the ability to live, dying to self, and living for you, Jesus, and living for others. The gospel is not a consumer gospel. Yes, it gives us something more precious than anything we could ever buy. But the new life we live in the Lord is one of serving, not consuming. And this subtle heresy that's out there is affecting the church. And it's turning things into to something it shouldn't be. And, and you can see it in different ways. It comes in all different forms. We might look at some of the churches that, you know, have coffee bar and this extravagant children's ministry with costumes and performances and a worship service that's like a rock concert and, you know, a, a message that's a multimedia event with a really funny and energetic pastor, which I'm kind of not. Um, <laughs> and, and we might, might think, well, that's it. But, but it can come in other forms, too. A consumer church can be one that loves sound doctrine that says, you know what, I come to this church because they, they preach a good message, a sound message every Sunday. Now, we want to do that, but is that why you're here? I mean, that's important. I don't mean to say that doesn't matter. But we ought to come to serve, not merely consume. So let's be like the Ephesians, by God's grace. Let's be humble in this, but let's be like the Ephesians, by God's grace, to, to do the hard work of discerning these things 
searching our own hearts and saying, Lord, help us be true. Help us be true to the gospel, the, the pure and true, glorious gospel of grace, to toil and labor like the Ephesians. Now, like the Lord is, he is full of commendation and encouragement, and he brings great encouragement to the church in Ephesus, but he loves them enough, and he loves us enough not to merely say that when we have major things that need to be corrected. The church in Ephesus, though it was strong in these ways, had a major issue. They were a doctrinal powerhouse, a stalwart in their commitment to the gospel. But they had abandoned their first love. They they had, in some ways, the, the theory of doctrine, but not the fullness of it that affects the heart. They had lost that. They had effectively banished this love from their community. And it left them in a very vulnerable place. How far had they fallen? We get a sense of where they had been just by looking in Scripture at the church in Ephesus. There's a lot about Ephesus in, in the Scriptures, in Acts, in, in, in the letter to the Ephesians, First and Second Timothy written to them as well, Philemon related to them as well. There's a lot in Scripture about this church, actually, certainly here in Revelation. So we can see kind of what the church was like. You can just look in Acts 19. It describes the beginning of this church. It's fantastic what went on. This was a major city in the area, actually one of the largest cities in the Roman Empire. It's basically on the scale of what, for us, what would be New York City. For them, this, this significant city had experienced tremendous transformation by the gospel. In Acts 19, it says, uh, well, Paul preached the gospel, and it says, this continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Verse 19, and a number of those who had practiced magic arts, brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. There was massive revival going on in Ephesus. There was so much uh, transformation that was going on that people were burning their sacred uh, scrolls. This was a, a place where people were into the occult, and probably everybody had occult stuff in their house. And as the gospel went forward and they were sobered by the reality that God was among them and transformed by the promise, the wonderful truth of his grace, they burned their scrolls. These scrolls were worth millions of dollars. 50,000 pieces of silver. A piece of silver was a day's wage. So do the multiplication. You see, this is millions of dollars of stuff. Just that they they burned because they were so affected by the truth. The love of God had transformed them. In Acts chapter 20, we see this interaction with the Ephesian elders, and and you can see the love of God that's there. Uh, They're saying goodbye to their dear friend Paul. It says, when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all, and there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. This is a church that was full of love. It's no coincidence that Paul in Ephesians 3 prays for them that they might know the amazing, infinite love of God. This was a church that was so full of this love that it poured out, and, and from what we can tell, they planted church in their, whole, in their region. So the seven churches, perhaps all seven and even more, six other churches, were planted through Ephesus. So the love of God, as it always does, had an effect on them in, in three ways. Love towards the Lord, I'll burn these scrolls. I'm all for you, Lord. I trust in you. Love for one another. They loved each other. The Ephesians is full of these 
one another commands to love one another. They loved each other. And they loved the lost. They planted churches. They reached out. And this whole area was transformed. This was a church that was full of grace and truth. If you had visited this church, you would have been impressed by both their commitment to truth and love and all that was going on there. But something terrible had happened in Ephesus. And what's scary is that, that you can remain committed to truth, at least in some surface way, and lose your first love. We don't know what went on. But in some ways, I, I think it makes sense. Think about this church is facing opposition all the time. There's always these heresies and heretics coming in, trying to vie for control of the church to take it over. And it's really easy to get cynical in that situation, isn't it? Where you're always fighting battles, everybody's against this truth. You're always facing opposition. It's easy in that to start to, to kind of hunker down around truth, but lose your heart. And that's what seems to have happened in this church. Maybe they started thinking of themselves as, you know, we're the guys that's, that kept the gospel. We're the ones, you know, we're not compromising. We're not doing puppet shows and performances in our church. We're, we're preaching the gospel here. We're, we're not compromising in, in a worldly way. We're not doing anything with those Nicolaitans. We are faithful. If you will come here, you come to die in the gospel. And they, and they start, to, start to think that way, that we, we're the gospel, we're the right way church. We got the right way. We got our doctrine straight here. And they start drifting away from the heart of doctrine. And they are in danger here. They are even in greater danger than the other churches listed, all except for Laodicea. Because Christ says, if you continue, I'll take the lampstand away. I'll take this lampstand away. The, this, this lampstand, we've learned, uh, is a lampstand. It, it, it holds lamps, and it's meant to shine and illumine. And it represents the churches in the book of Revelation. The fire burning, the light is the Holy Spirit. And it's meant to shine the, the presence of God. A church is a lampstand. A church is a place where God shines his truth and love to the world. He illumines the, the darkness around and he, and he brings his presence to bear. That's what church is about. It's a place full of his truth and love, his presence and power as a witness to the world. That theme is throughout Revelation, by the way. We're called to be witnesses as we abide in truth and love. And Jesus says, if you continue, I'm going to remove the lampstand. You will be extinguished as a church. They are in great danger. And it's scary to think about. And honestly, guys, I have a concern for us as a church related to the Ephesian church. Because I think in, in some smaller way, but a, but a similar way, we are in similar circumstances. We live in a part of the world, at least within the United States, that, that is a tough place to be a Christian. It's a tough place to be a church. The core truths of what we believe, this gospel is offensive and puzzling to those around us, our, our friends, our loved ones. The core truth of the gospel, that, that we were so bad because of our rebellion against God and our sin, that a great man, the greatest man, the God-man, had to die for us. That's how bad our sins are, how bad we are apart from the Lord. 
that he had to die for us. There was no other solution but for him to shed his blood and die, to be tortured and killed on a cross for us. It's not a very appealing message, at least to those who think they have things together. And that he rose again on the third day, alive forevermore, ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God right now, waiting, ruling over his church until he returns. That's a far-fetched message for the world. And so the vast majority of those around us consider this gospel message, which, which we count as good news, right? We're forgiven, and we have hope that is sure as his resurrection, a historical event we know happened. It's good news to us, but to those around us, it's either unknown or unloved. That's the vast majority. What, 98% of those who went out on the street in Cairo? just went up to 100 different people, there might be two people who would say, yeah, that's good news. The rest would be either unknown or it's unloved. Curiosity to some and a direct and terrible offense to others. We live, that's where we live, guys, and we live there every day. And it can be hard to be a believer here. And it can seem that, you know, to, in order to survive, we need to kind of tone down the gospel just a little bit, you know. Don't talk about sin quite so much. Don't talk about the bloody cross quite so much and that would make it a little easier maybe for people to, to be here and be comfortable with us you ever feel that there are churches that are making those choices tone it down just a little bit but i think what we're saying right are you with me we're not going to do that because this is a glorious message and it's the power of god for the salvation of everyone who believes so we're not going to tone down the power of god it's where there's grace and power to change lives. But, but that means that we might at times be small and seemingly ineffective. We might hit seasons where there's just not much happening. And if we're not careful, we can grow cynical in that. And we can start to wear our gospel fidelity as a badge of honor on us. And that can become our pride. We're the church. We're right way church. Where we do things the right way. And we can lose a heart of love. A heart of love for the Lord. A heart of love for each other. A heart of love for the lost. We can think we're just good old battle-hardened gospel warriors here when we're more like hard-hearted, loveless band of the frozen chosen. Now, I don't think we're there. So don't hear that. But if we're not careful, we could go there. Because of the choices we've made, because of the situation we live in. And so it behooves each of us to examine our own hearts and say, have I lost, at least in some way, that first love? Have I lost that first love? Have I grown old and crusty? Have I lost the deep devotion and enjoyment of God? Have I lost the delight to be with God's people? Have I lost the love for those who don't know Christ? Have I stopped caring, stopped praying, stopped sharing? Can I casually ignore my neighbors and friends and family while they walk around in darkness? Have you lost your first love? There's a lot at stake in this. The warnings of Christ are significant. This church is in danger of having the lampstand removed. It's sobering. This could be us. As 
we don't heed this word, if we wander into this place and don't heed this word. And guys, there's lots of, lots of extinguished churches in history and even around us. Just drive around a New England town, right? There are churches that now are condos or the buildings are, are condos or restaurants. And have you ever gone by and wondered what happened? Wonder what happened. And some of these are old churches. They're the original church. And we know from the history of New England that probably every single village in all of New England was settled by earnest believers. They came here as believers. Now, it wasn't only believers. But they came here in large part as believers to, to live together in community, to love the Lord and love each other, and create a, a shining light to the world. So these were churches that were planted in earnestness. It's, it's, do you know why a lot of the towns were formed, by the way? So Methuen used to be part of Haverhill. Do you know why Methuen was founded? Because they didn't have a church close enough to go to. They had to travel to, to Haverhill. And, and they wanted to found their own church and thus to found their own town. And that's why they formed the town. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine towns all being formed because of church plants? That's how New England was formed. So we know historically there was a heart for God. Have you ever just wondered how that, that church, how did that church become a restaurant? It's just the building, represents the people though. What happened? And guys, I, I, I know churches that, that have wandered from their first love. I know churches that have closed their doors for this reason. So there should be a sobriety for us. There's a lot at stake here. Now our, our Lord graciously addresses us. We have lots of reasons for hope. So don't, don't stay in that place of fear. Let's move on it. Beyond it, we're going to get there. But there's a lot at stake. There's a lot at stake not only for churches, but there's stuff at stake for our own salvation as well. Jesus says to the one who conquers, I will give you the right to eat of the tree of life in the, in the paradise of God. To the one who conquers. Implying that the one who doesn't conquer, you don't have that right. There's a sobriety here to us as believers. Now, now don't get me wrong. We are rescued from our sin through Christ alone. There's nothing we can do to rescue ourselves. And there's nothing we can do ultimately if we belong to him to unrescue ourselves. But if you belong to the one who's conquered sin and death, as you hold on to him, as weakly and, and incompletely as you might do that at times, if you hold on to him, you will conquer too. doesn't mean that you're a mighty warrior in the conquering. It means you hold on to him, that you remain faithful. You keep on keeping on, holding on, even if your faith is there, a tiny little speck, barely there, you're still conquering. And so we're called to per persevere, to hold on to him. And, to, and, and I think what this means in our passage is to say, Lord Jesus, please keep me from having a hard heart. And this is the Lord saying, even now through his word, I'm concerned about your hard heart. I'm concerned about the drift. I'm concerned about the, the forsaking, walking away from that first love. I want you to live in this love, and I want you to persevere. Now, if you belong to him, you'll respond because he's in you. The Spirit's in you, calling you to that. But just don't simply take it for granted. Take this warning soberly and find the grace of God through the means of the warning working in your life. Where do work out our salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in us to will and to act for his good pleasure. So what should we do? 
How do we respond to this? What do we do about it? Well, it says actually very explicitly what the church in Ephesus was supposed to do. Jesus says, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. Remember, repent, and redo. Three R's that maybe will help you remember. Remember, repent, and redo. So first, remember. They're to remember the place they used to be. They're to remember how it was. They're to remember that love. They're to remember that zeal. They're to remember the wonder of encountering God's forgiveness and God's holiness that drove them to do things like burning their scrolls and, and, and relocating to another city to start a church. They're to remember those days. They're to remember that love. They're to recognize the difference between then and now, to see how far they've fallen in their love for the Lord. They're to see how, how precious and good it was, how sweet it was when they came together and loved to be with each other. And to see the stark contrast to now. They're to remember how excited they were about the harvest. How eager they were to see their beloved neighbors and friends come to Christ. And remember the bold steps they took to just reach out and care for them and to share Christ. They're to remember what love looked like in the beginning for them. And they're to repent. Repent is, is a word that simply means to change your mind, change your outlook, have a different perspective. That's really what it means. Now it follows through in, in action. That's part of what they're called to do. But as they remember their first love, and as they look at their lives now and realize what happened, they're to have a change in their mindset. They're basically to say, I'm not going to settle for less. I'm not going to settle for staying here with a hard heart. I want that love to characterize my life. Now, it doesn't mean you want to go back to when you're a brand new Christian and immature. I don't want to go back there in that way. I had, I, was, I had a lot of crazy ideas and a lot of immaturity and a lot of things that still need to be dealt with. But I do want to live in that first love. Because when I came to the understanding of the amazing grace of God, my whole life changed. And nothing else mattered like he did. Nothing else mattered like being with his people. Nothing else like mattered like being on his mission. I, and I did some crazy things. I actually, as a brand new believer, um, I, was gonna, I was ready to go to college to be an engineer. I was going to leave all that and go be on a mercy ship, actually. That's what I wanted to do. Um, I was only 17. And, <laughs> and I, I, mean, I, I just had heard about it briefly. And I thought, yeah, that's how I'm going to serve Jesus and go be on a mercy ship and, and do these things. And, and, uh, and so I was praying seriously, like fasting and praying, about telling my parents and asking them permission because I needed permission. Now God got a hold of me and gave me some wisdom for me, at least, in that time of my life not to do that. But that was, that was what the love of God was doing in my life. And, and I'm sure I could talk to many of you and hear similar stories. Now, don't get me wrong, by the way, if you didn't have that moment, you know, when you first came to Christ and everything was crazy and wonderful. For many of us, Thankfully, you've never done the stupid things that others of us have done, so you didn't have that dramatic experience, perhaps. But first love for you means the time in your life when you loved him the most. Remember that time. The time in your life where you loved the church the most. The time in your life when you loved the mission of God, loved the lost the most. 
we're to repent. We're to think about those things and remember them and say, I don't want to settle for anything less. And then we're to live in light of that. We're to redo the things you did at first. Now that doesn't mean I, I go sign back up for the mercy shifts. But it means that that sort of sacrifice and service starts to characterize my life again, perhaps. So you redo. You follow through on repentance, right? You follow through on your mindset. And you make the choices in line with that. And you refuse the choices that go with a hardened heart, an old, crusty heart. That's the formula. That's what the Lord calls. And it's more than a formula because it's God's Word and He's going to give you power as you respond and obey. The Spirit of God will come in and meet you. Now the good news is the church in Ephesus seems to have done this because we know a little bit about their history after the, the book of Revelation was written. And when they are characterized, they're characterized later on as loving. And they were involved historically in a lot of things. A lot of great leaders came out of Ephesus. A lot of wonderful things were done in and through Ephesus. So, so from what we can tell, they responded. And a generation or so later, they're commended for their love. How about us? Will we be responsive to the Lord, even today? Will we remember, repent, and redo? Let me give you some questions that will help. And I'll try to do this quickly so we can finish relatively on time. Let me just ask you some questions that will help you evaluate your heart, perhaps. When was the last time for an extended season, not necessarily one Sunday, but for an extended season where you were really excited about coming to church on Sunday just to enjoy God? When was the last time? And maybe that's right now. That's wonderful. Be encouraged. But when was the last time where that went on for a while? And what was that like for you? Remember that time. Remember what it looked like. When was the last time you felt yourself, found yourself spending hours with fellow church members just to hang out and talk about life in Jesus. It wasn't because you had to go to a small group. I'm not that I'm saying you shouldn't go to small groups, but, but it was just because you, you loved to do it and you found time, you made time, you invited people over, or you hung out. And, and what you did in your hangout time was, was not just hang out and watch a movie together, but you hung out and talked about life in Jesus together, what the Lord was doing, how he was working in your life how he was working through your life. And you just loved sharing and being together with beloved friends who love Jesus too. When was the last time you found yourself doing that? When was the last time you found yourself reaching out and sharing Christ with others as just kind of a regular thing during the week? Numerous times throughout the week. You just found yourself doing that. You know, you're, you're shopping at the, at, the, at the store and you engage the, the uh, cashier. And you say, hey, can I... What, can I pray for you? You're in your neighborhood and hanging out. Or you're, 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 you're in your neighbor's house doing a project together and, and looking for opportunities to tell them about Jesus. When, when was the last time where that was more or less your normal week, that there were maybe one or two or three times where you were involved in just being with others and involved in just telling them about Jesus, what he was doing in your life? Not necessarily sharing the gospel, though that's so important and so essential, right? But but sharing your life in Christ with them in some way. When was that last in your life? Because I'm, I'm, you can probably tell those questions are questions that characterize somebody who's affected by the love of God. That's what the love of God looks like, right? When the love of God fills our hearts, it, it leads to these sorts of things. And I don't say this to make you feel guilty, but to make you feel hungry that he would do that in your heart and in your life. 
now. That's normal Christianity, guys. That's why Jesus is saying, I have this against you. We're not to drift from that. We're to live there. Do you need to repent of settling for less? Do you need to repent of settling for having a hard, crusty heart? As the band comes up, let me just share a little bit of my own life of what God's doing. This actual message uh, characterizes things that God's been speaking to me over the past couple months. And in some ways, I, I think I would have described myself as this, you know, kind of battle-hardened, gospel warrior, pastor guy. I, might, I wouldn't use that title, but, but as I think about my life at times, you know, I, I've, by God's grace, been continued in the, the truths of the gospel. Sometimes it just might simply be because it's my job. It's more than a job, but, but, you know, I can think of myself that way. And I feel like the Lord's been addressing me, saying, Paul, I, I want your heart. You think it's, you know, battle-hardened. I call it hard-hearted. You've grown crusty. And you're lacking the tenderness of a heart affected by the love of God. The tenderness of love for the Lord. A tenderness of love for your, your brothers and sisters in the church. A tenderness of love for those who don't know Christ. And he's been addressing my heart. And I recognize that. And, I, and I've been being convicted. I've realized that often my motivation for obedience and following through and doing the things I ought to do is not so much the love of God, though it's there to a degree. But often it's because I realize, you know, just street smarts, like you're stupid not to obey God. You get into trouble when you don't, so better obey Him. And that's not bad motivation, just not a sufficient one. And you can't live long off of that. And I've been living a long while, I think, off of that. And God's trying to get my attention and, and make me recognize that there's been a decline in the love of the Lord in my life. I've been, uh, if you maybe haven't followed me on Twitter or Facebook, but you, you can, if you have, you know I've been listening to some Keith Green. Keith Green is really old school for those who are younger, but for me, who came to Christ uh, right around the same year he died, actually, that was the stuff that marked those years of my first love. And God's used it. And I love what he says he's in the song, My Eyes Are Dry. Because my eyes are dry, my faith is old, my heart is hard, my prayers are cold. And I know how I ought to be alive to you and dead to me. But what can be done for an old heart like mine? Soften it up with oil and wine. The oil is you, your spirit of love. Please wash me anew with the wine of your blood. As we sing this next song, Simplicity, I want to encourage you to ask the Lord to probe your heart and to show you if you're settling for something less than that first love, that love for the Lord. And to come to Him. The renewal doesn't come from yourself. It doesn't come from simply remembering the events, but remembering the source, the one who died for you, shed his blood, rose again, who is for you. So as we sing this, I just encourage you to come back to him, ask him to renew your heart.
And I pray as we do that together and live in that, you'll cause this lampstand to not only continue to shine, but to shine even brighter. We trust for years and years to come. Let's seek the Lord together as we sing.